It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lauritsen. Like setting a new standard. Okay, so you can start. Yeah. So can you start telling us about, I'm, I'm just testing the mics too, but can you start telling us about this alien con that you went to? Uh, now that the now that it's rolling, I'm all self conscious about it. Um, so one of my <laughs> guilty one of my guilty pleasures, but it probably won't. Yeah, yeah right. Well, of course honest. not. I mean, let's be honest. One of my guilty pleasures is Ancient Aliens. Have you guys seen that TV show? I've seen a few episodes. I can't claim to be an expert, uh, but being in the kind of whatever community we're in, things get recycled often. And I'm like, hey, did you see this thing about like? Uh, the levitation technology that the Egyptians used to build the pyramids. I'm like, ooh, levitation technology. Let's dig into this. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I dabbled. Okay, okay, right on. It's a fun show, man. It's a really fun show. A lot of it's pretty stupid. A lot of it's like <laughs> swamp things and hollow earth theory and things where I'm like, okay, that, that's a hard sell. But a lot of it's like, but you still watch even when. It's oh my god, episodes? it's because because every <laughs> once in a while, well, not every once. I would say most of the time. It's like legit stuff that you're like, yeah, how is that possible? Or, or what, how, how can you explain that? So I'm into this stuff. It's just sort of a guilty pleasure. And I like to read books about all the different, you know, government officials who have, you know, quote unquote, come forward and, and, you know, they talk about, you know, all the different alien races that are, you know, here on the planet and working with our governments and sharing the technologies and all this stuff. So anyway, my brother gets me a, a day pass to AlienCon, which is downtown, which is basically ancient aliens. They have a convention that they put on in different parts of the country once or twice a year. So it's like year. a legit event. Yeah. When I went, it was not very well attended, but apparently <laughs> oh, it was the first day. It was like a Thursday, and I guess it goes Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Oh, so the weekends are probably prototypically, as conferences go, more well attended. I, I imagine that's when everybody in the costumes showed up and oh, stuff. Oh, costumes yeah. are the best okay. part. But anyway, we watched this documentary called... Bob Laz- one of the panels or whatever, one of the things you could go to was uh, it was a documentary called Bob Lazar and Flying Saucers or something. It's on Netflix. You can watch it. Wait, was David Wilcock there? Is it Wilcock or Wilcox? David Wilcock. Do you know who Wilcock. he is? No, I'm bad. maybe I don't know. Okay, you'll, who, have to dig it. you'll have to dig into him too. That's okay. a, that's another conversation. But I was I, that sounds like something he would have gone to, right? Oh, Oh, one hundred percent. That's that's right up his alley. He's very much into conspiracy theory stuff and uh alien races and um clandestine technologies and, mm-hmm. and he's he's a really well-paid really well-known quote expert on the subject and uh, we know him personally he's a fascinating dude he's like and, tied into the whole wellness community we, we met him through well our friend jeff and also um david wolf david wolf he's got like a couple cookbooks or something doesn't yeah he? he's he's one of the world foremost experts on superfoods and longevity right, right, right. And super herbs and, and, and he had bio, the big biohacking. longevity conference yeah. that was his that was his yeah, that was well, not his event but it was he was very much involved correct okay anyway so, okay. so bob lazar see, yeah anyway yeah so bob lazar is this was this guy who worked at area 51 and it's a fascinating it's way too much to sort of go into now but it's a fascinating sort of story. And essentially, they've made this documentary about him and how like when he started to come forward with some of these things that he had experienced at Area 51. Such as? Um, there were little things like uh, in, the, in the Joe Rogan interview, which is what started this whole conversation. He was interviewed on Joe Rogan. And Bob Lazar is a, a pretty um, reclusive guy. He doesn't have books. He doesn't 
do this the speaking circuit. He's not trying to sell anything. He just kind of wants to be off the radar, but he thinks people should know about this stuff. So in that interview, he talked about, you know, Joe asked him, like, have you ever seen one of these flying saucers in person? And he was like, yeah, I have. He's like, they would bring us out, you know, occasionally to like do these little test flights with these things. And he said they're maybe 24 feet in diameter at the largest. They're clearly built for like smaller physical creatures. He said he looked inside one and saw what they looked like and everything. And And do you believe like after all of the things that you watch and listen to, like, do you feel like this is legit? I mean, I want to believe. That's the Um, the thing, right? Yeah, it's like. (laughs) Throwback. It's so interesting because. It's like, are we conditioned to think it's it's kind of nuts and and maybe a made up story, or are we? Is it the opposite where everybody's talking about it, and so it's really easy to make up? Mm. That's what I wonder. It's like I think it's it's interesting when when things are discussed so much in our culture, we just don't know what's true or not. Yeah, my my take has always been like, if you are a rational person, and I know that's a subjective sort of perception, but if you're a rational person and you you steep yourself in this world enough, eventually you'll be able to sort of separate the bullshit from the stuff that is a bit more legit. You'll see certain things come up over and over again, and you'll be able to sort of identify who they're coming from and whether that person's full of shit or whether this... So there's a lot of stuff that I'm like genuinely compelled to believe in. And there's a lot of stupid shit as well. (laughs) I mean, on a macro level real quick, right? The thing that I trip out on is aside from extraterrestrials or aliens or anything like that, I think about just technological advances in general and how much of the technology we are currently enjoying right now in this moment with you on planet Earth in 2020 during the time of this recording, and how much of that technology was not only available but developed decades ago that the government had and was like, we're just going to hang on to this for ourselves for a while and the public will get it eventually, which makes me think, what are they experimenting with now and perfecting now that 30, 40, 50 years then we'll have access to? Because I do believe that's part of the life cycle of the development of technologies, stuff behind closed doors, which fascinates the hell out of me, Yeah, what they must have. I've heard it said that whatever we have now, they're about three generations ahead of it Good in, in the military. Three yeah. generations. Yeah. Yeah. Military, yeah. Like teleportation. Yeah. There's a, there <laughs> well, was like, actually. Well, look at the Jetsons. Everybody brings it up, but the three of us basically grew up with the Jetsons on television. You look at these things that we used to watch as kids and be like, wow, that's amazing. And now we have a lot of that same technology that was on this like made up cartoon and show. we don't even think about it yeah. we're just like oh yeah let me check my fucking super smart internet connected watch yeah. yeah last night i was at my friend's house and they have that new facebook portal which is uh yeah. it's very freaky it's yeah. basically a jetson's device because it's a it's a huge like ipad like screen with a camera built in and it follows, it follows you, you around, around the room, the room. Oh, that's because no, it's you. oh i'm sorry did you say you mean spies yeah, it's like basically Sorry, no, Amazon. Sorry. Let's be clear. When you say follow, you mean spies on you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's really. And that I wonder too, because I love all my Apple products. And yet I wonder, like, you know, Trevor and I are both wearing our Apple watches. We have iPhones. We have Apple computers. Sorry. I have a HomePod with Siri on it, which is really convenient, right? It's yeah. like to shout across the room. You know, I'm not going to say it right now because then I'll be get a response. But, you know, you can ask for something. And now... I've started using voice technology in all sorts of ways that I I was kind of like, 
I didn't think that I would be that into voice technology, but it is really convenient once you train yourself to use it and ask questions. But then it's like that big question that we're all wondering is, is it listening to us all the time and collecting Mm -hmm. data about it, right? Yeah. But this leads me into, it's a very good segue into how I wanted to officially start, although we have already started. But when in my head, I was like, what am I going to start with with Trevor? And that's the fact that you and I met through the Apple store. And uh, some people forget that I used to work for Apple. You were there for how long, Trevor? Almost five years before they came. You didn't get the plaque? No, they kicked me out like three oh, months shy. Yeah. Oh, I remember when they kicked you out. That was that was kicked that was a out. rough. Yeah. Why did you get kicked out of Apple? <laughs> like that sounds. <laughs> for what infraction? From my perspective, what compute? We, yeah. Apple went through a very interesting period when we were both there, and it's like it went from this like when I was started working there, and how long were you there before I got there? I was there in like mm. late Chris around Christmas two thousand five was when I was at first started working I at Apple. I had been there about a year and a half. So you like yeah. really experienced the hey, the like heyday that we see it as, which is Apple used to give us all these like free products like free iPods and and they had all these perks and everyone was just kind of like laid back and it it was kind of like we could make Apple whatever we wanted and then around that time for you which probably if I remember correctly was 2010 is that right or no before that 2008 it was right before Obama got elected yeah and so that was around the recession or right after the recession um because I feel like yeah, Apple really then, yeah. changed a lot during the recession because it was like everybody was scared in the country. And I feel like Apple reacted with a lot of fear. And then mm. there was these massive changes at the store that affected people like you who were kind of like in this old regime or whatever. Yeah, right? that's what it was. It was a yeah. change in management and a change in policy. And they got a little bit more strict about things and sort of tried to corporatize things. Not in a bad way, necessarily. It was just that the old guard, so to speak, had these sort of understandings about how things worked. And the the general sort of take was, hey, if the work gets done and we have the bodies and the people and the customers are happy, then we're good. But it became a little bit more sort of, I don't know, stiff after uh, some management changes. And then I had just sort of this understanding. I was big into acting at the time. So I I went on audition and they were like, you can't do that. And I was like, well, I'm gonna go because this is the arrangement we've had for years they use that as sort of as a sort of ammo to be like well you've been late a bunch of times so we're gonna fire you now oh wow Wow. apparently they fired a bunch of other people after me yeah and i mean it was really interesting because to me trevor was like i mean you were there from the beginning i think were you my mentor or something like that when i came in yeah yeah because there was you albert and um there was three guys i remember that basically were there as mentors to me when I started working at Apple. And that's how Trevor and I got to know each other so well. And the thing that I wanted to bring up is that Trevor and I were there for the launch of the iPhone. Yeah. And that, yeah. I feel like, was 07? such... 07? 06, um, was it? Yeah, was I, think it was 06? O- I think it was 06. Holy shit. I mean, that smoke. was like a yeah, really... Yeah. That was a, a something I'm very grateful for because that was a huge... Tr- turning point in technology when apple released the iphone and we all got a free one yeah we all got a four gigabyte iphone a four gig i thought it was an eight maybe it was an eight i think it was i think it was an eight you know i could find out i still have the box it's behind me in the closet it's an eight i already looked at it yeah it's an eight gig i mean i have my first generation iphone phone in there i think it might be in there but i I, I should fire it up trevor i think you were the one sitting next to me during the meeting and you just casually i think it was 
you, but I could be wrong. Maybe, maybe you remember this. And you casually said, oh yeah, we're getting the iPhone. And I was like, we're getting a free iPhone. And I remember that meeting. That's when like we got to hear about the iPhone. Nobody knew what it was. It was such a big secret, mm. right? And we heard about it in this meeting. And the very next day we launched it. So we were there at the store experiencing how everybody else experienced the iPhone for the very first time, which was like a really cool thing. It was a cool time. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. remember the, we had these massive lines and people waiting and everyone was so excited. I think there's even pictures probably with me and you at the Apple store on the day the iPhone launched. Probably. Yeah. Pull that yeah. Up. Man. I mean, when you look back on that time, did that feel like a pivotal time for you too, to just witness technology in that way? It was cool. I mean, I, I haven't, I haven't really thought about how pivotal that shift was. I mean, you, we went from, you know, analog click button stuff to everything touchscreen. And I, I guess I haven't really thought about how it was a pretty cool experience to be there at the launch of that thing. I remember at the beginning, there wasn't even an app store. You just got the apps that were on your phone. People were hacking their phones to change the wallpaper. Yeah. You couldn't do any of that. Yeah. It was so basic. And then the app store came out. I'll, and I'll never forget hearing about Shazam for the first time. Oh my and I was God. like, how yeah. does this work? What do you mean? You can press a button and find out what song is playing? We sound so old right now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't mean to sound dated, but it's just, no, I feel like do. it's such a gift. It's kind of like when my grandfather would tell yeah. me stories of when televisions first became available, like what it was like to just sit around and listen to the radio. And I'm like, what do you mean you didn't have TV or the cars? Even actually, I was on the phone with my dad about an hour ago, and we were talking about the movie 1917. And he's like, oh, yeah, I have some some old letters or a journal entry from your great grandfather about his time wow. in the war. And I'm like, that is no so kidding. cool that, that is we're really still cool. connected to these times that really weren't that long ago, but feel like an eternity ago. And we yeah. get to witness all these changes. But I think part of the reason... I wanted to bring up this, the iPhone launch is because since that time, which was less than 20 years ago, so much has changed. Technology has changed so rapidly. You know, my grandfather and, and you know, other people in my life have witnessed the development of cars and television and, you know, like a few things. But the three of us and most people listening have, have witnessed massive, massive changes in such a short amount of time. And we still have so much more time left, hopefully, to witness even more. And it's, it just kind of blows my mind sometimes when I think about yeah. it. What's well, weird? Actually, the one more thing I want to bring up is yeah. podcasting, Trevor, is that I remember you talking about podcasting back in the day. You were teaching iTunes, I think, right? Yeah. This, and a podcasting yeah. workshop. Yeah. You were yeah. talking about, yeah. and her, I remember because you and I both taught classes at Apple up on the stage in the theater. And I, I remember teaching iTunes at one point and being like, hey, guys, guess what? There's this thing called podcasts and you can go learn for free. That was it. That was like what a podcast was back then. You could like learn French for free. There was like free French lessons. Yeah. And it was like it was kind of like people were teaching more on podcasts. I don't know if interviews were as they were big more back in, then. they were more informational and less brand focused or promotional uh, focused like colleges had like universities you could go on there and take free courses through podcasting yeah. and you started your podcast or career right like pretty early on 2009 is when we started Inside Acting, which is a podcast I ran for nine years. My God. Nine and a half years. I mean, oh, that's nine. That's yeah. pretty early. That's OG, man. That's yeah. really OG. Because right now when I think of OG, I think of someone like Pat Flynn, who started Smart Passive Income. 
I think maybe it was around 2009 or 2010 for him as well. And so he's a, a leader in, in the educational podcast business world. And so for you, starting it way back then, was it because you were you, of your experience at Apple that you... Because I feel like a lot of people didn't even know what, what podcasts were back in 2009. Yeah, a lot of people didn't. And I, I had actually... I remember a friend telling me about podcasts even before then in like 2004 or five. And that was way before, like, that was like the iPad, the iPod had just come out, you know? So it was like way, way back. And he was trying to explain it to me and I just wasn't, I, I couldn't wrap my head around it. We but, used to describe them as like free audio books. That's how I yeah, used to phrase I, it. I used I to like, say yeah. it's like, it's like a, it's like a homemade radio show on demand, but you subscribe to it like you would a magazine. So you like comes to your digital doorstep when there's a new issue of it. This and it, old wow. I was trying really hard wow. to, to explain to people. <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, man, it was cool. But I, that, that was actually inspired by another podcast that had already existed that was in New York called Everything Acting. And it was two women that were sort of middle-aged and they were, it was a wonderful podcast. I loved listening to it, but I couldn't relate to what they were sharing too much because I was on a different coast. I was a totally different gender and demographic and all this stuff. And so I sort of hijacked their idea and then made inside acting which is a blatant you know like imitation but, yeah, uh, but this it, reminds me of uh the the there's an amazing book that uh author named austin McCune wrote i think it's McCune. austin yeah maybe the last name's not correct but anyway it's called steal like an artist oh austin cleon cleon yeah, thank yeah, you yeah. sorry i was McCune. that's my vocal coach's last name wow i hybridized two humans in my mind yeah so steal like an artist right it's this so idea, it's this it's this idea that um can we ever be fully separated from the amalgam of influences that have touched our lives. And I, I don't think it's possible because, you know, you, you talk to any of the greats, right? I mean, there's somebody that at some point, an avatar, a hero, a mentor, or a collection of all of them touched them or influenced them in some way. I mean, I, I think about all the artists that have affected my life, and I'm kind of psychotic when I find uh, an author, a musician, a chef, someone that really, really touches me with their art. I'll go into their history, their formative years, and find out what influenced them. And you can see that it's been kind of this pastiche, this collage of all their influences, but then they put their flavor, their timbre, their their print on it. So when you say that, it just reminded me of that book and how much I sometimes struggle with that. You know, I don't know if either of you feel this way, but it's it's often sometimes this thing of the line between imitation and carving your own identity. Mm -hmm. Because I think for me as a musician and a singer, one of my big challenges still is I don't know that I've found my true voice yet. I still feel like sometimes when I'm performing, I'm still bringing in too many of the influences, the mannerisms, the body movements, the timbre of my voice, where I'm touching maybe too much sometimes on, on the people that have touched me. So I, mm -hmm. as artists, like... How do you guys feel about that in terms of, you know, bringing something fresh and unique versus being too influenced by the people that have moved us? And where's that line? Yeah. That's such a deep, awesome question. I mean, number one, that, that you even have the awareness of like, oh my God, I'm too far leaning. I'm imitating them too much. I mean, yes. So many people don't have that awareness. And I think that's why their careers don't last because they, they don't realize they're like another Pearl Jam knockoff or another, you know, because like, <laughs> there's a million of those and they didn't last, right? None of them like are around anymore, but Pearl Jam's still around. Um, but I, I, th I feel like if you have that awareness and you just keep working at it, it's impossible to be too much of a copy because you're, you can't help but put your own thing on it. And you've got several, it's not like you're, you're like Eddie Vedder is my guy and I want to be just like Eddie Vedder, but my own version of Eddie Vedder. Like you've got several different influences and you just even said like cooking and this and that and music. And so it's like, you're, you're pulling from all of those things. So I feel like it's impossible to to be too severe of an imitation in that. 
I could be wrong, but that's sort of, that's the way, that's how I talk to myself when I have that same conversation. I'm like, well, Trevor, you are aware of this. This is a good thing. And number two, it's not like you're trying to be one person. You're combining a lot of things that you like mm. into one voice that, that people sometimes may say like, oh, I hear a little bit of Nine Inch Nails in there or I hear this or, or that. But it's like, okay, yeah, that's awesome. Thank you for the thing. But it, it's not like you sound like Nine Inch Nails or you sound like Alice in Chains. It's like, I hear it in there, but it's also your own thing. I love that all of the musical references you made were all 90s rock bands. I just want <laughs> to give you, time, no, no, I just, I, I want to give props to that. Pearl Jam, Nine Inch too. Nails, like this is the excellent. Yes. excellent. Smashing Pumpkins, Stone yeah. Temple Pilots. Shout out to Creed. It's Creed. Oh boy, Creed. that's... <laughs> That's when the podcast went south. <laughs> Shout it out. Shout it out, Scott not open. <laughs> oh, Scott Stapp, where are you now? Well, it's kind of like, it's interesting that we even have that mentality. I wonder if it's, if it's going to shift a lot because right now it feels like we have, well, actually very factual, we have access to more information and we have insight into what people are doing more than we ever have before. So it's much easier to find comparisons. It's much easier to feel like you might be copying somebody or something, right? Because you're exposed to so many different ideas and so many different people all the time through platforms like social media, podcasts, or websites and all these other platforms. And so I think it's it's going to get to a point where people will be less sensitive to that, I suppose, because I think for a while, maybe over the past five or 10 years, there's a lot of fears of people copying. And then there's a lot of shortcuts. I mean, right now, I think it's actually extremely commonplace for people to copy one another, because especially on social media, it's like, oh, what's working? That's working for that person. So I'm going to try that out too. And you can't help but kind of copy somebody if you're trying to, to replicate their success. And then social media actually seems to thrive on copying. It's like you and that's, I think, the whole influencer world is based on copying. It's like, check out the outfit I'm wearing. You should wear this too. And then those people buy the same clothes. And so they can look like their favorite influencer. Check out what I'm doing, what I'm eating, et cetera, et cetera, what I'm making, the food that I'm making. And then it just becomes this this like constant... People are just trying to do what everyone else is doing because mm. somebody else did it well. And then there's maybe the opposite. And perhaps maybe what Jason's saying is that He's trying not to do it. It's like it being in resistance to it as if it's like not acceptable. I just think it's a lot more acceptable as part of my point. And there's just so much information. Sometimes, as, as I think you were also saying, Jason, that you can't help but but imitate somebody because you don't know where your ideas are coming from, your influences sometimes. They're just mm. kind of in the background. I think one of the best things that that I have found and I've done versions of this, but the first time I remember doing it was uh, when I did the Artist's Way course, the Julia Cameron book, yeah. and there was a facilitator. We had a very small group. This was back in like 2003 or four. And one of the tenets of that, of course, with the, the morning pages and the artist dates and all of those things was doing a detox. They didn't call it that, but I call it that now. Is this detox of information being presented to you. So for the course, I remember um, one of the, the directions that the instructor gave us was no listening to any outside music, no TV shows, no books. I mean, social media, what did we have back then? MySpace? Like, no MySpace. <laughs> but her point was, when you liberate your consciousness from being constantly bombarded with other people's creativity, there can be space for your own 
organic creative impulses to rise more rather than potentially imitating other people. And I remember how liberating that was to do that for the first time. Did you do the whole week of no outside information? And you know what? I, I, lo- I love music so much and I'm so used to listening to new albums and talking to friends and get, I mean, to this day, constantly like just devouring music voraciously all the time, new music. So I remember I felt like a junkie. It was like, what do you mean? I'm not going to listen to music for a week. But it forced me to sit down at the guitar or the piano and just come up with whatever wanted to come out. Yeah. Which was, it was, it was a fascinating, I call it a detox. It was like a creative detox. Wow. Yeah. So no movies, no, I mean, I've I've done The Artist's Way several times and I love it, but I remember that week in the book, at least it's about no reading. She calls it reading deprivation. Yes. But did you actually do like no movies, no music? Correct. So what did, so besides making music, what else did you do? Journaled a lot. I remember I wrote a lot. I wrote a lot of lyrics to new songs and I just, I just sat down at the instrument and was like, this is the only option. I, I've willfully chosen to delete all the other options and be myopically focused on whatever wants to come through my voice, the instrument or my journal. I remember that was it. That was voice. It was the instruments. It was my journal. And that was it. And it was, it was so cool to just have that laser of a focus. And Whitney, with you bringing up all the technology and all the outlets and all the information, I feel like that's even more potent than ever. And in terms of technology, the cool thing that, that uh, I just want to interject here really quick on the subject, our friend Adam Yasmin, we did this event with him which was all about mindfulness in the digital age, you know, the the sense of how to create a framework to stay mentally, emotionally healthy in an age of information overload. And I think there's a lot of technology that is like anti-technology technology. technology. Like our friend Adam just got this thing called the light phone, which apparently is this minimalist phone. I I saw it yesterday where the only thing you can do is call, text, and it has an alarm function. And that's it. It It has three function, call, text, alarm. It's and, like the iPhone when it first came out. Right, right. You know what I mean? But it's like, it's like we've had like Nokia phones. I mean, you can just go get like a $10 Nokia phone, but their whole thing is, I guess it's low EMF. It's lower in the blue light spectrum or whatever. And it's, it's ultra, ultra minimalist. And they don't call it anti-technology technology. That's my label on it. But I'm seeing more of a, more of a movement into getting people less distracted and more present. And that's their whole thing with this phone is like, get minimalist and and you know shed checking your social media every five seconds so you can actually have more presence with people Mm. and our friend adam it's interesting to hear his experience about spending time with his daughter spending time with his partner pam spending time with the people in his life and bringing this phone instead of his iphone or his apple watch and how much more present he's been feeling as a result of that i bet i bet yeah that's a that's a key skill i think that people are gonna have to implement going forward which is just mindfulness around how they engage with technology because mm-hmm. it's it's not the technology that's to blame it's our lack of awareness around how it runs our lives well i think that's that's an advantage too earlier you were pointing out trevor how it's we sound so old because we remember <laughs> what it's like to not have an iphone and it's it's funny because it's only the, ten years ago, right? Like, and we yeah, remember Creed too, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> iPhones and Creed. <laughs> but it, it's funny because you know I sometimes feel a little bit sensitive about the age topic, especially because I spend a lot of time on on social media just observing it because I'm fascinated by it. It's entertaining and it's part of my work. And so I'm on TikTok a lot. I talk a, a lot about that. And TikTok is dominated by teenagers and twenty year olds. And there's kind of like this insecurity that anybody over 25 seems to have on TikTok. Like, oh, I'm I'm an old person on here. And it's just kind of funny when people in their 
late twenties, thirties or forties, like think that they're old. And I'm, I don't know. It's just, it's like this insecurity that comes up and I start to feel a little defensive because I don't, I don't see myself as necessarily old or young. A, because it's always relative and B, why does it matter that? Why do we put like a negative spin on it or an insecure spin on it? In fact, if we kind of flip it and look at the advantage is that the three of us got to grow up and experience life before all this major technology. When I was growing up, I didn't have my own computer. I had to use my dad's and it was like a big deal if I if I got to spend like an hour on the computer, right? Mm-hmm. We used the computer at school, but it was like every once in a while we'd use a computer at school, but mostly we're writing things down. And to me, I'm so grateful for for that because I didn't have to deal with the the craziness of social media, which affects me a lot as an adult who's already fully cognitively developed right? Well, I think our brains don't, what's the right term, but they're not fully developed until we're like 21 or something like that. Isn't that right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I just read a really interesting book about that stuff, but go ahead. We oh, can talk about it in a second. Yeah. yeah. I, I am. First of all, I always want to give a shout out. You were, Trevor and I both love to read and I love meeting other people like Trevor that read <laughs> books like I do, because that's I feel like you and I could like have a book club and just talk about all it's It's very insular very exclusive no but but honestly it's rare trevor i mean i am usually one of the only people that in my group of friends right now that reads the type of nonfiction books that you and i like to read like the personal developments and but not only reads them but reads a lot of them and so that really excites me and i think it's becoming more and more rare because so many people spend their time on social media. When we were growing up, it was like, don't spend too much time playing video games or watching television. Completely. Right? Mm. And now it's like, don't spend too much time on your phone. And it's it's actually, uh, when I coming back to the advantage, is that it's hard enough for the three of us to avoid it. But imagine how hard it is for anybody who was born after 2006 with this technology or, or grew up. And now parents have to decide when to give their kids devices. And yeah. kids want... Kids want devices and know how to use devices when they're super young. I mean, wasn't Adam actually saying that his daughter, who's four years old, she knows how to work the Apple TV or, or whatever and go onto Disney Plus and pick her shows and all that? Wasn't he saying that, mm-hmm. Jason? Correct. Yeah. And it's it's really cool because it shows the brain how the brain works. But then you just start to wonder, how is that affecting us for better or for worse, just like anything else? And as Trevor said, it's it's going to be a skill to learn and stay mindful. It's going to be a skill to get offline. It's harder and harder. That's the that's the rare thing. It's it's hard for people to read. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been looking at a lot of statistics lately about book reading, and it's shocking how little people read. I mean, the numbers are going down. Read books, I mean, right? They're going down and down, and it's just like we're and coming back to Jason's point. Now we're consuming all of this information from social media and and from the entertainment world, but are we consuming enough educational information outside of school? Mm -hmm. Yeah, one thing I've noticed is that I just, if I open up my news app or my social media apps or just look at, you know, Apple rumor sites, it's a guilty pleasure of mine, (laughs) or ancient alien stuff, uh, I notice if I do that first thing in the morning, by like 11 a.m., I'm fried. Like, I just can't, I can't my brain is scrambled and it takes like hours of like an information detox to, for me to get back to like a baseline of like, okay, I can comprehend the world again. So 
if that's that's me at, at almost 39 years old, I can only imagine what it would be like for a teenager or a 20-something whose social value is so tied into these things. Yes, exactly. That's Okay, so the, the thing I want to, first of all, agree with you, Trevor, is that I don't think technology is to blame people training themselves in the responsible, ethical, mindful use of it. Absolutely. The thing, though, talking about kids and the challenges that we didn't necessarily face when we were teenagers or in middle school or high school, in doing some research a few years ago for some stuff I was presenting on mental health, I was looking at research that Harvard Health had done um, around SSRIs and antidepressants and specifically around teenagers and young people and found that in their their studies, children aged uh, 15 to 21, suicide was one of the leading causes of death, right? So it's like... I'm not saying social media is to blame or technology is to blame, but it's interesting to see that if one of the leading causes of death in America for people aged 15 to 21 years old is suicide, it's curious to think about how much this distraction, the social pressure, the, the I mean, high school and, and middle school is already tough enough to feel like you belong, to feel like you fit in. I went through a lot of darkness at that age, and I can't even fathom the attendant extra layers of pressure of keeping up on TikTok and Instagram and Snapchat and all the in the comparison trap. But I just I, for me, that statistic really just jumped out. And it, it, it hurts my heart when I even think about all these young people taking their lives and, and, and us asking why, like getting into like the nitty gritty of why is that happening? And how can we create a better support system for young people rather than here, you know, just take a Xanax you know, take a Xanny, chill. You know, yeah. take a take a Prozac, chill. Because I feel like that's an epidemic in itself. Is just, oh, your kid's got a problem, throw a pill at them. Yeah, I, I feel like three courses that need to be taught in all schools from I don't know fifth grade on are mindfulness, personal finance, and conflict resolution. Amen. Wow. wow. Amen. If we could teach those skills to kids in like a the same way we teach them history and math and science and all that stuff, we would have a very different world. But instead, we just throw them to the wolves with a lot of this stuff. It's like, figure it out on the playground, you know, or figure it out when you get a job or, or they or leave it up to the parents. Figure it out after these. your first suicide attempt, you know? Right. And it, it becomes the Seriously. responsibility of a parent. And we know how much pressure, I mean, none of us have children, but through my close friends and just staying informed, you see how much stress parents are under. And especially younger parents who are perhaps around our age, I think the temptations of devices is so big. I mean, a lot of people I talk to just feel very conflicted. They're like, but it's so easy to let my kid watch Disney Plus all day. It's so easy to give them an iPad and watch Netflix kids or play all these games. I just need a break. So I'm going to give my my children this so that I can take the break and then Yeah. I mean, our parents, I guess, would do that too for us. Like growing up, we could watch a certain amount of television or play video game, whatever. But now it's just so easy. And one of my friends, I think her son is about eight or nine. He's feeling the pressure at that young age to have an iPhone. Because all his friends have all one. All his and friends. They're, they're all connected They're under 10 years old and they have these cool devices that are not only expensive, first and foremost, but who knows what they're doing to kids' brains, whether it's the EMFs or whether it's the information online. And I mean, when I was growing up, I don't know if I felt pressure to have cool things like Nintendo or whatever. I just thought like I wanted, it wasn't like, oh, you don't have it. You're not cool. It was more like, look what I have. Come over and play with me. And it was like, because it was rare to have a video game. Not everybody you knew had a game console, right? 
And so it was kind of like, I didn't feel like I needed to have it. Whereas I feel now with with things like the iPhone, it's you're kind of perceived as weird if you don't mm. have one or whatever else device doesn't yeah. need to be an iPhone. And that to me is also kind of frightening because then it becomes all this social pressure to get these things. And then because we're so driven by the desire to fit in and be accepted by other people, we start to make decisions that aren't based in mindfulness. I mean, I think maybe the bigger issue that we're kind of talking about here is external versus internal. We're taught so much about how to operate externally and not enough about how to operate internally. Amen. And that's what you guys are doing with Wellevator, which I just love. It's so much about, like, I was looking at your website earlier before I came here because I wanted to be as, you know, as, <laughs> as up on the latest as I could be. Mutually and stalking I, each other. And I was just so... It was such a wonderful feeling to see the work that you guys are doing in the world, which is so focused on these intangible things of like feeling control of your life, you know, do the things that make you happy, learn how to like nurture your healthy habits and define what healthy means for you. And I was just looking at all the, the you know, the blog posts and, you know, listening to the podcast episodes and like, you guys are doing really important work, really important work. And I, what's coming up for me right now is I actually want to ask you guys, what are your mindfulness practices around technology specifically? We've outlined how damaging they can be. What do you guys do to sort of help not only protect yourselves, but also what would you recommend to other people to, as a place to start? Well, maybe we can just all three of us bounce off some ideas. I love that. Yeah. Thanks for opening that up, by that's, the way. That's, yeah. a, and actually, that's, that's something that I, I'm working on a, a blog post for wellevator.com right now which by the way, for the listener, we have all the show notes from the episodes on wellevator.com. So if you're enjoying this conversation, you want to check out the books and the and Trevor and, and everything else that we're discussing here, maybe I'll find some old photos of us at Apple and put them in there. There's a That'll few on be... Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> we're, babies, we're babies. We're babies. That's at wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Just look for the podcast section and you can find this episode. So in terms of... You know, it's really interesting when it comes to the mindfulness, because as Jason mentioned, we, we spoke at an event about a week ago, a little under a week ago, and it really got me thinking, because as much work as we do around mindfulness and well-being, through that panel discussion that we are on, I realized I still have, and I guess this is actually always the case, but it really started getting me reflecting on, on the opportunities that I had. So I feel like I'm, I'm kind of only doing the basic work right now. My first thing is, how long can I go when I wake up without checking my phone? One thing that was brought up by one of the other panelists, which if you didn't know about him already in his work, Trevor, I feel like you'd be really into it. His name's Tommy and he has a company called Brick. Mm -hmm. And it's about like turning your devices into a brick temporarily. So going on, on literal vacations without using your device and seeing how long you can go without using your device beyond the wow. necessities. And so he has all these great statistics. We'll link to that in the show notes as well. I, I think he has like some downloads or blog posts on his website about this. And the one that really stuck out with me was how he started talking about how most of us use our phones as alarm clocks. And what happens is that we have to physically touch our phones to turn off the alarm. And it's we are so, what's the word I want to use? Vulnerable, for lack of a better word in this moment, when we first wake up. Impressionable, maybe, is the word I was looking yeah. for. Where we're still coming into consciousness when we wake up. 
And so if we pick up that phone and immediately start taking in information on the phone, reading our text messages, our emails, checking Apple News, if you're on an iPhone, uh, checking, you know, whatever else, like going on social media, if we do that the first thing in the morning, we're starting to put all this information in our heads that has a massive effect on us throughout the day. What you were saying earlier, Trevor, about how you would read blog posts or whatever earlier in the day and by 11 a.m., I think is what you said, you would start to feel fried. It reminds me of the research they've done on willpower, how we have a finite amount of willpower each day. And we need to really think of it as a precious resource because if we use it all up at the beginning of the day, we're literally not going to have any willpower left. So we have to be so mindful of it. And we're the society right now that will use by any means necessary to get more energy. It's like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll caffeinate myself to get more energy or I'll take pills or supplements or I'll, you know, it's like we're obsessed with getting energy because most of us are underslept and we're not getting quality sleep. It's a huge issue. I think like 80% of the population, at least in the US, but maybe the world has some sort of sleep challenge. I mean, that top, talk about an epidemic, right? So anyways, this idea of what do we do that first thing in the morning? And are we checking our phones first thing? That to me is something I have to be mindful of every single day because it is so addicting, literally. Yeah. You know, that we want that hit. We want that, inf- for me, it's like information or because my career right now changes literally every single day. The first thing I'm thinking of is, did I get an email today from somebody that's going to give me an opportunity? And is it time sensitive? Right. And that's another thing is I think a lot of us want to check our devices first thing in the morning because we've completely changed our relationships in terms of priorities. People expect you to get back to them really fast, faster than ever. Right. If you don't respond to somebody's text fast enough, they think you're mad at them or something's wrong. And if you don't respond to an email, you literally can get in trouble. I mean, I, for me, uh, last week, somebody quit a project that I was working on with them because I didn't respond to their emails fast enough. And I was so resentful because I thought, who? I never told you that I was going to respond to your emails within your perceived sense of time. But this person had this idea that if I didn't respond to them within what they thought was appropriate, which was never communicated to me, then I wasn't whatever, uh, professional, or I wasn't doing my job quickly enough or helping, you know, like they had this such an extreme rush mentality in their head that they could no longer, they decided they no longer wanted to work with me on it. And I just thought, this is exactly why people have anxiety or one of the many reasons I should say, but because we, we put pressure on one another and we try to impose our priorities on one another. You know, as many of us are aware, emails and text messages are just a list of other people's priorities. And so if you wake up and the first thing you do is take in other people's information and listen to other people's priorities, your self-care goes down the drain. But we have to completely reframe our way of operating because it feels good to go on there and feel important. It feels good to get text messages. It feels good to get social media notifications. It feels good to read emails from other people telling you that you're important or that something's exciting. And so for me, every morning, I'm kind of battling that. Like, okay, what are my priorities? What's important to me? What do I need to do for myself? And so that's a long answer to you, Trevor. This question that you're posing is like, 
every day I begin my day thinking, how long can I go without mm. checking my phone? What are those priorities though? Like, like if in, in the vacuum that's left from not checking your phone, what are you right. feeling that with? Well, I'll, I'll tell you one of the best things recently that I've done. I started in November 2019. So just a few months ago, I started going to a 6.15 a.m. yoga class. Oh, I saw that in your email. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and man, yeah. has that it made a massive difference because I have considered myself a night owl most of my life. I was lucky if I would get up before 10.30 a.m. most days. And I kind of carried this this weight of shame because people would hear how late I woke up and, and judge me for it. Mm. Right. And so I, I felt kind of embarrassed, but I also would try to own it and be like, but I'm a night owl and I don't want to go to bed till 2 a.m. And I still don't. It's really hard for me to go to bed before midnight. And some nights, as a result of that, I only get four hours of sleep because I get up for that class three days a week. And I'm really trying to train my body to wake up that early every single day because. I think it would be beneficial to me physically, mentally, and socially and professionally if I just get up at 5 a.m. every morning. But it's hard. It's a rapid change. Anyways, the big benefit that I've seen is that when I get up Monday, Wednesday, and Friday mornings at 5.15, I'm so exhausted and I'm on such a time crunch to get to class that I don't have the time to check my phone. If I check my phone, then I'm late for class or I don't get into class. There's a consequence to it. So in other words, it's set a consequence and a, a huge boundary that I don't normally have the other days of the week where I get up and I have an hour or so to just do whatever I feel like. And usually I'll fill that space with something on my phone or my computer. Mm. So those mornings that I get up for that are so magnificent because not only am I barely checking my phone, I turn off my alarm and I usually check my phone to see if there are any like important notifications. Like, was there an emergency text message or was there an email? I, I really do need to respond to right away. And rarely there is at 5 a.m. My, my emails and texts don't usually start coming in until maybe 9 a.m. Pacific time. And so the next thing I do is I go to this amazing fitness class that is based in mindfulness that is taught by somebody who who really values meditation and gratitude practices. And, and it's just really one of the best classes I've ever taken. So it nourishes me so much. And it's been just one of the greatest gifts I've given myself because my priority is taking care of myself first thing in the morning, three days yeah. a week. And that sets the tone for the rest of the day. And you're building that muscle so you can catch yourself in the moment when you're, oh God, I'm lost in iPhone land. Yep. Put it down. Like that's that's a skill, man. And that's a muscle. I feel like the more we can nurture that to catch ourselves and go, ah, it's happening. Yes. Like, and then act on that. And I feel like fulfilling, starting your day with something as powerful as like yoga and breathing and, and getting out of the the environment that's so conducive to just defaulting to a technology piece of technology is, is that's a, it's awesome. It is awesome. And I, I encourage more people to do that, especially <clears throat> it's kind of one of those, like if I can do it, anybody can do it because of how rapidly I've had to change my schedule to do that yeah. and how physically hard it is every morning, especially if I don't get that much sleep. You know, yesterday on Monday, I think I got less than four hours of sleep. And so my alarm went off and I, I just sat there and debated, I'm so tired. I didn't get enough sleep. I should really keep sleeping. You know, it's like I try to battle with myself. And then I, I just said, I'm just going to go do it. And I didn't regret it, even though it was physically exhausting. For all those reasons that you just listed, Trevor, it's, it's so important for me. And it shows me a resiliency within myself that 
I don't experience when I do just decide to sleep in or when I do decide to lounge around in my bed and watch TikTok videos, you know? And it, it again, it does, it's tra- it's the training. And the other huge benefit of doing that is that I have noticed a big difference between how I am in a yoga class when I've been on my phone, when I've been around other people all day, when when I've just had all this information. When I, t- I take another class once a week at 5 p.m. And that class is much harder mentally for me than it is physically. Physically, I'm usually much more awake at 5 p.m. You know, I feel I feel ready for it, but mentally I feel so drained. Kind of going back to what you were saying, Trevor, too, is that my brain is just so full of information that I'm not as present. But at that 6.15 a.m. class, I am more present than I yeah. have ever been in any other class because I haven't talk to anybody in person aside from the people at the studio. The only people I'm interacting with are a bunch of strangers that are in class with me. So it's very different than like when you talk to your friends or your family or a coworker or whoever else, these strangers is just kind of like very simple interactions. So I'm not processing any of those exchanges. Right. And then because I'm sometimes not reading any information before I go into class, Mainly, I'm just kind of like getting ready for the day in my head. And I just feel like I'm much able, much more able to focus on my body and the breathing and everything else. And it's such a better experience than other classes when my head is just like full of the day. Yeah. You know? You're still easing into consciousness from the sort of dream world like we were talking about earlier. And I feel like if you, if that first hour of your day is based in something other than reacting to other people's brains. Yes. uh, And requests for you, you know, that's... It's awesome. Our friend Tommy that we mentioned who runs Brick, he had a great quote from the event we did last week, which was, emails and texts are other people's to-do lists for you. (laughs) And that hit me and I was like, you know what? It really is, especially when there's this energy of get back to me or it's not communicated. People have an expectation that you get back to them right away. But it really is. You know, I, I, I have as part of my morning practice that sealed container of time for me to meditate every morning, to nourish myself, to take the dog on a walk, breathe, to do all of those things before I turn the phone and the computer on. Because I've noticed that prior to doing that and having that really dedicated morning practice for me, at least an hour to 90 minutes in my morning just for me, I would start to feel a sense of resentment. Because if I jump into my email and my phone right away, it is people texting me every, without fail nearly every single morning turn on that phone, ding, 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 bunch of texts come in, bunch of emails come in. And if I'm not nourishing myself on a mental, physical, spiritual level, I get into resentment mode very quickly. And it's not that I'm resentful for other people asking me for things. I'm resentful at myself for not giving myself what I need. Mm -hmm. And there's almost a self-abandonment. And the resentment comes from a feeling that I've abandoned myself and given too much attention to other people and not met my own needs. So in terms of mindfulness, I've noticed that that's why it's so important for me to have that container and that morning practice to start my day. The other thing too, I want to- Before you get into that, two things based on what you just said. One is that a lot of people keep their phones on at night and I find that fascinating too. I've dated men where I'm sleeping next to them in bed and I'm hearing the notifications go off and I'll ask them before we go to sleep, hey, do you mind turning off your notifications? And they get, they've gotten angry with me. Multiple guys that I've dated have, really? they're like, feel this resist. Like, what do you, why do I need to turn my phone up? And my sister is like this too, is that some people will literally sleep with their, their phone next to their head and not on airplane mode. My phone is always on airplane mode before I go to bed. 
because I use it as an alarm and it is near me as a result of being an alarm. And so I don't want to, I don't want to hear it buzzing. I don't want to hear it beeping. I don't want to see the screen flashing, but I've noticed by sharing rooms with various people, friends, family, romantic partners, that so many people have their notifications on it. And I find that interesting, Jason. It's like, you and I share that and maybe Trevor too. It's like when I turn my phone on, then I see them. But imagine the people that throughout the whole night, their brains are still hearing mm-hmm. the noises mm-hmm. the or seeing it. The subconscious it's, bing, bing, bing. They Even never when you're get sleeping, a break. Your brain is aware of the surroundings, hearing yep. it buzz. Ooh, that's, I know. Isn't that's, that's, that? I mean, but some people don't register that. They think, well, what if there's an emergency? And I, I guess know. that's a good point, but maybe you should install a, a regular phone in your home or some sort of notification alert to tell you because now so many people are afraid that they're going to, it's like that fear of missing out. I'm going to miss out on an emergency. I'm going to miss out on something. But but if we don't give our, our brains a break, that yeah. means that our entire existence is waiting for a notification. I'd also it's be curious though. Yeah. I'd also be curious though to hear if they feel stressed out. I mean, the three of us, I think, are are perhaps more sensitive to that. And maybe the rest of the world is just, or not the rest of the world, that's a huge generalization. But, you know, other people are just like, no, it's fine. Like, I don't feel stressed having that. Like, I don't feel But do they anxious. have the awareness to even know what stress is, that's, is part of the question. Is not, it their new yeah. normal? Is it their exactly. baseline? And I think yeah. like many things, um, you engage in a certain practice long enough and it becomes so normalized, it becomes so habitual that you're not even aware of doing it. Much like we go back to, I think, the, the incubator of this particular segment of our conversation where... For me, I've noticed that I can snap into mindfulness when I ask myself two questions. Why am I doing this and what is it that I really need? Because I noticed that on a physical level, I've had a problem with sugar addiction. I don't think it's a problem anymore because I worked a lot on this of the awareness of when I would reach for a cookie or a piece of chocolate or vegan ice cream or whatever. Name a million things. I love sugar. It was often, and I noticed a corollary between feeling really lonely, feeling really sad, feeling masochistic or self-flagellating. And in order to distract myself from that pain, often self-generated, I would try and mask it and comfort myself through sugar. Because on a deeper level, I noticed that as a child, I didn't feel like I had a lot of control because of my mom and dad's relationship and my dad leaving and a lot of abuse and abandonment and things from my childhood. The one thing I remember I could control was what I put in my mouth. Mm. So as an adult now, as a, as a child in an adult body with a technical education, the thing that I notice that I still want to control is what I put in my mouth because that's how I felt in control as a child. So to, to the point you brought up, Trevor, around the awareness of, uh, of this, when I pick up the phone, I ask myself, am I distracting myself from pain? Am I distracting myself from boredom, which is something Whitney has so wonderfully and lovingly flagged as a friend to me of like, why are you picking up your phone? I'm like, I'm bored right now. So mm. boredom is pain, mm. you know, suffering discomfort. is pain. Masochism is pain. It's, it's, it's discomfort. And instead of using sugar now, I'll use my phone in the same way I used sugar to distract myself from pain, boredom, misery, and suffering instead of just being with it. I wanted to come back around to one other thing based on what you were saying, Jason, which was the situation aside, because everything is, is relative, right? It's relative to the situation. But I did think it was an interesting example of what we're talking about here is recently, without going into details, Jason, you shared with me a text exchange that you had. And one of the things that I remembered very clearly was that Jason was texting back and forth with somebody and he didn't respond to a text right away. 
And about 10 minutes after his lack of response, the person wrote something like, how, how dare you not respond to me? Or this isn't a great time to respond. And it was literally 10 minutes had passed. And Jason was out walking his dog. Without my phone, because I wanted connected present time with my dog. So I left the phone at home. Now that situation aside, it, it really is relative because 10 minutes can feel like a really long time for some people in some situations. But it's also interesting how our concept of time has changed so much because we have changed our relationship through technology, is that everything's so instantaneous. And so as a society, I think a big issue that we're facing now is that we're used to getting things as quickly as we want them, whether it's information or communication or food now, you know, you can order things online, you can get it delivered to you, we have fast food. It's like, how quickly can we get our needs met? How quickly can we experience pleasure? How quickly can we relieve pain? That another thing that I think we need to work on right now is patience. And I remember as a kid, my parents teaching me about patience. And I remember as a kid trying to navigate boredom, but our relationship to patience and boredom and, and the way that we define it is very different. For me as a kid, boredom was like after school and you didn't have a friend to play with or you didn't have a video game or you didn't, your favorite TV show wasn't on for a few more hours and your parents were busy. And so you had to entertain yourself. And as a, you know, you had to work through boredom in a completely different way than now if we're bored, if we're uncomfortable, if we're in pain, we can reach for our phones and alleviate that to some extent instantaneously. And then if we can't get those needs met, we will lash out at people. And so 10 minutes becomes this painful period when Jason on the other end of that situation, he just wanted to have a moment of mindfulness, but he was kind of shamed for it. God, isn't that interesting? And that boredom, because I'm, I'm sort of like an armchair neuroscience geek. So I, I read these books about, you know, how the brain is responding, especially to technology. This book called The Shallows by a guy named Nicholas Carr was really scary. Just how I think the subtitle is How the Internet is Remaking Our Brains or something like that. Oh boy, I'm adding that yeah. to my list. But uh, this, this one book talked about how boredom is that magical sweet spot where our brains go into something called the default mode network. So it's like we basically have these two modes of sort of engaging with the world. One is this sort of active engagement where like I'm, I'm, we're having a conversation, I'm working on something, whatever. Boredom is when you're sort of walking through the forest or sitting and staring at the wall, paying attention to your breath, whatever it is, but you're not actively trying to change something about your outer world. And that is like they're finding, the research is showing that that is such an essential time for our brains to start taking all this disparate information that we've been soaking up and connecting and organizing it and things like that. It's kind of like what our brains do when we sleep, but to a, a slightly lesser degree. So boredom is essential. And it's 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 concerning to me, and I'm trying not to sound like an old person saying this, but it's concerning to me that... Are you insecure about being old, Trevor? <laughs> a little bit. Um, it's concerning to me that, that there's so little opportunity to be bored. And that if we want to be bored, it has to be a conscious choice now. Like I, I subscribe to Apple Arcade now. What's that? Oh, that's like the video yeah. game. And this fucking game, pardon my French. <laughs> no, it's okay. You Grindstone can swear. is like what is the, that? It's like the best game I've ever played. <laughs> oh no! And I was like feeling I'm a little. So I was a little like toasted. Not toasted. I was. I was just like my brain was done last night around like seven or eight p.m. I came back from this couples therapy session, which is wonderful. Not I loved it. But after those sessions, depending on what we talk about, I'm either like amped, like let's go do something awesome, or I'm just like I need to just chill and like just sort of let my brain so i was like okay i'm excited it's 10 o'clock i'm just gonna lay in bed i'll play one level of grindstone 
for that point, I'll just have one cupcake. I'm looking, I need to look yeah. this one up. One level oh, of God. grindstone. So it's so fun. It's so fun. Anyway, so long story short, I, you know, I, I, it was 1230 and I had played who knows how many levels and I'm a completionist. So I wanted to get the crown and the different blueprints out of the treasure oh, chests. And it's like yeah, that's it. Those little games. It's awesome. Yeah, it's I love amazing. Those actually. Yeah. I'm trying to, th- it reminds me of another game that I've played and I've gone through periods of myself oh. of getting really addicted to games like that's, I get it. So speaking of mindfulness, I'm trying to use games like this as, as a reward for doing the things that I know I should be doing. So I'm trying to bracket it or, or containerize it in a way. Anyway, I was in bed and I played this game for two and a half hours. It felt like 20 minutes. And then I'm I'm going, crap, now I'm not going to have enough sleep for tomorrow. I'm going to be shit in this interview. You know, I'm not going to be present. And and I didn't, like, what did I just fill my brain with? Now I'm going to sleep like shit. Oh, and that's it, it interesting was, too. It's almost like then we start to punish ourselves for not being mindful enough. Yeah. And what I noticed too is that when I do that kind of stuff, like whatever I focus on late at night in 45 minutes to an hour before I turn off the light, I dream about and I think about it, and my brain processes, and I woke up with the fucking music from that game in my head. So I know all night long, I was seeing the little colored little creep guys, and my dude, like, uh, and I was like, God damn it, I feel like I just wasted a night where I could have used that to be bored and let my brain start to maybe think about some of the stuff that came up in the therapy session. And I could have been visualizing or thinking about what's going to move my life forward because I have this general sense of anxiety that I'm wasting away and squandering opportunities. Mm-hmm. Instead, I played this stupid game, which was awesome and it was fun. It's a mindfulness thing. It's got to be an intentional, like I'm choosing to do this for this amount of time and I'm also, and, and I'm going to maybe choose to be bored for this amount of time and it's so easy to reach for that phone. Right. It comes back to that whole, like, we have to be really intent. That intention thing is a muscle and well, this one thing I wanted to I just, ask I, you, I just Trevor. I realized I vented like all my frustration. No. <laughs> that's good. That's the, the, this is the that's perfect good. format. We love sir. that. You have Vent come away. to the right podcast mm. for that. Maybe we should start positioning this podcast as therapy too. It's like everybody oh, gets to talk. I mean, wait till you it, hear oh the, the episode with Rob. Has it uncomfortable yet? Oh, okay. <laughs> it gets cu- uncomfortable in lots of different ways. Um, our we have an upcoming. We're actually probably aired by now, depending on our release date. But with Robert Cheek. Oh yeah. Which I can't wait for you to hear. Trevor. Smoke. He's awesome, man. Yeah. I've, I've only met him once very briefly at a veg fest, but he's, he's he really stud. is. And the, yeah. if, for the listener, if you have not listened to that episode yet, it's probably out already. I guess it all depends on the order in which you're listening to episodes, but that'll be linked to in the show notes. Trevor, a follow up question that I had because we started off this episode talking about kind of like conspiracy theories. So a question for both of you and, and Trevor, I'd love you to begin this in your perspective on it based on all your reading and research and conspiracy theory interests is that do you think that technology or, or all of these things that we're going through right now, is that a form of human control? Is it is do you think that somebody's like a mastermind? Like, ooh, I'm gonna give people this technology that they'll become addicted to and ooh. I'm going to use, you know, social media to manipulate people to make money. And am I, you know, do you think that there's like some, some evil forces at play or manipulative controlling forces? Cause I wonder that from time to time, like, are we as a society being given all of these things that, that people know are so pleasurable, but is it, is it because like we're being manipulated into using it so that maybe our brains don't function as well as they possibly could. Right. Or is, I mean, there's certainly, I hope there isn't like one person doing all of that. But do you think that maybe there are some some forces at power where they think if we can dumb down people, if we can make them feel addicted or become addicted and feel insecure about themselves and compare them, like 
it becomes like all of these very superficial things. And for me, one of the reasons that I want to be more mindful is, and the reason I love reading is because it empowers me when I have information. It empowers me when I feel like I'm a critical thinker. It empowers me when I I feel like I am working more for internal, intrinsic reasons versus the need to, for ex- external validation and motivation, right? Because I think when we become so focused on the external and less in touch with the internal, it takes away some of our power mm-hmm. and that, you know, some of the most powerful people in our, our history as human beings are the, the critical thinkers. They're the rebels. They're the people that have stepped away and said, this isn't working. But it's like some people will bring up the reference to that Pixar movie, WALL-E. And how you have you both seen oh, Wally? Yeah. Masterpiece. Right? Isn't yeah. it is I mean, if I remember correctly, it's like showing a future society in which people are just kind of zombies and 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 taking in information and eating lots of junk food and just just literally sitting like they're no longer active and they're just doing everything. It's, they're basically just pleasure machines. All they want to do is feel is put in the least amount of effort and get the most amount of pleasure. And if it often feels like society is going that way as well. Mm-hmm. And do you, do either of you think that there's like kind of a mastermind reason behind it or are we doing it to ourselves? You know, like, are we all actually in control of society and we're all just contributing and we've all let ourselves down this path? Like, is it our own doing or is it something else at play? Uh, that's a really fascinating thought experiment. Have I, you thought I, about these things? A little bit. And I feel like that to the to the a large degree, it's still just sort of the Wild West when it comes to what all this technology is and how we're all interfacing with it. But I do think that a distracted population is more easily controllable. So I would not be surprised in the government think tanks of the world where people literally all they do is sit around and think about the future and mass populations and human the human condition. If they just go like, just keep Netflix affordable and we'll be able to get away with a few things. Deep in the Pentagon. You know, like, yeah, like seriously, I mean, at I mean, it's, it is, I, you don't see, I, there are some wonderful movements happening right now, but I don't know enough about history and like, and like, you know, how all of this has happened before and will happen again kind of stuff. Like, mm. but, but it does feel a lot more like people are like, oh yeah, like all this like climate change stuff, we should be in an uproar. And it's more just like, man, that's a sad article. Have you seen, have you seen The Witcher on Netflix? It's really good. Is it good? No, like that's, no, that's, oh, like, you're serious. that's like the, that's like the thing. <laughs> I thought you were going to say that was related to this. I was like, oh, really? No, like that's, no, that's and, yeah. I, and I, that's, I, I do that too. I'm just as guilty. Like I was really into the climate movement for a while. And honestly, I had to de, I had to unplug myself because I just, I was, there's, this is a thing. It's like eco depression or something. It's like a thing where people, they immerse themselves so much in this and it's just a slew of bad news and inaction and like, God bless Greta Thunberg, but we need people like her. I wish I could be like her, but I can't, I'm too sensitive. And so I need to like find my area of leverage, my, my personal protest, my personal, what gives me energy rather than sucks it away. And, um, but also try to also be a human being existing in the world that has some fun every once in a while. Yeah. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm as guilty as everybody else. I'll read about the coral reefs and things like that, or the Amazon and, and I'll be like you upset give it about thumbs it. Thumbs up or I'll, cry I'll, emoji. Yeah, or I'll share it or I'll talk about it, but I'm, it's not in me to go stand on the steps of city hall and protest. I have different forms of activism that I feel more called to, but yeah, I'll read that stuff and then I'll go watch Netflix 
because I can afford it and because I want to escape from the bad news. So I'm, yeah. I'm there with the rest of the world and I don't know what the answer is, but does that kind of, that's my sort of gut yeah. level response to But you haven't that. come across like conspiracy theory talks about that sort of thing. I'm sure that there's a degree of that, but I don't think it's like that well organized if it is mm. happening, maybe in countries like Russia or China, but uh, here in like the quote unquote free world, I don't, I don't think it's that well, that's a relief. Intentional. But well, that's my <laughs> I'd like completely... to believe that we're not being controlled and manipulated. Maybe it's a bi- maybe it's like a, a fortunate thing. Like maybe as I was saying, we've done it to ourselves and then people in power think, Wow, you've just made our jobs a lot easier because you're really easy to control. Yeah, you I know? mean there's there are disinformation campaigns that we've identified and who knows when it's still happening and whatnot. So I think it's it's happening, but it's it's messy mm-hmm. and i think we're we're fighting the good fight as as citizens in in the in democratic nations but i don't know i mean what do you think jason i think that on a basic level of energy and physiology that a populace that is fed extremely toxic food and toxic fluoridated water and living in densely populated city environments with bad air quality and 5g and 5g and being bombarded with constant messages from giant marketing corporations of you're not enough and you're a piece of shit until you buy this thing. Having a distracted, toxic, sick, dumbed down population is, yes, vastly more easy to control. Because if people were learning mindfulness practices in school and conflict resolution and body awareness and self-awareness, a activated, self-aware, healthy public much more apt to rise up and say, we are not going to stand for this shit anymore. And if I may, just taking taking one example of many, and this is a sweeping generalization, but I, I, I admire the French for many reasons, one of which is I've noticed at least the 40-something years I've been here looking at like the new stuff, whenever the French government tries to pass something that the public doesn't like, they immediately get in the streets and say, you know, mange mailed, you know, eat shit, we're not going to take this. Like, immediately. We are so toxic and sick and distracted and dumbed down that it's like, yeah, give me my new Ford every three years and give me my new Netflix show and give me my Chick-fil-A and like, just, you know, let me let me live my comfortable, stupid life. And I don't mean stupid as in like a bad thing. I'm sorry, you know. Simple, I'm, perhaps. Si- simple, thank you. That's a better word. I apologize. Simple <laughs> life. Give me my comfortable, simple life where... I'm not going to allow myself to get uncomfortable, angry, or fired up about things that are happening. And I do think that a great book is um, Power Versus Force, where we're talking about, in that book, the, the energetic imprint of certain emotions and words and how words are used. And on the emotional, energetic scale, you know, shame and feeling guilt are, are very much an extremely low vibration. So I think if we have a populace that feels badly about themselves, again, that it's toxic, you know, toxic thoughts, toxic food, toxic relationships, it's th- those people are easier to man- manipulate. I mean, on a physiological, energetic level, do I believe now, if I may, in, in closing argument, think that there are forces? I mean, I think we're, we're, we're conditioned perhaps to think in binary terms, Democrat, Republican, vegan, paleo, good, bad, right, wrong, good versus evil, right? It's... it's it's one of the ultimate, you know, tropes and archetypes of our mythologies, right? Good versus, has been since the dawn of storytelling. I think that there are non-physical energies that feed on the energy that we emit as humans. 
So if we are in an extremely low vibration of guilt, shame, toxicity, that energy is feeding something or some things. But if we are activated, empowered, self-aware, living in love, living in compassion and generosity, the imprint of that energy also feeds something. I don't want to label it or put a name on it, but I do believe that our actions, our thoughts, our deeds, and our energies are feeding things outside of ourselves. I do believe that. And so to be aware and responsible with our energy, thoughts, words, and deeds, I think is critically important. Mm-hmm. Wow. So we've talked a little bit about mindfulness and your meditation practice and your morning sort of ritual. Is there, how, how does someone go about starting down that path? I think learning to be quiet and embracing aloneness and quiet, I think is the first thing. And I didn't, I don't mean loneliness, but aloneness, intentional. I'm going to wake up in the morning. Even if I have to wake up, this is something that we teach people, Whitney and I, like wake up 30 minutes. I don't want to wake up, wake up 30 minutes earlier. Stop complaining. Wake up a half an hour earlier. Okay. Before you tend to the kids, before you tend to your spouse, before you tend to the phone, blah, 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 blah. Take that 30 minutes and have a designated area in your house that you can be alone and be quiet. Just even 10 or 15 minutes. Just sit with your eyes closed. I know, but I hate my thoughts. I know thoughts are painful. They can be painful if you give them power. But I think people learning to be comfortable with aloneness and quiet of their own thoughts is the first step. And I think people are terrified to be alone with their own thoughts. Terrified. And I mean, to be honest, you know, I don't think the purpose of mindfulness and meditation is to banish negative thinking or painful thoughts. I think it's to be with it and watch them and not give them power. You can watch the pain and watch the suffering in your mind and go, okay, I don't have to do anything with it. I don't have to believe it. I don't have to give it power. I can just be with it. Mm. And I think that's the first step is people just sitting in quiet, intentional aloneness with their painful thinking. That's amazing. You, what you just outlined was one of the biggest breakthroughs of my adult life, which was I, I meditate every morning and I use Headspace. I just love it. One and of the Headspace guys was at our panel shout too. Out to Tom. Oh, yeah. Shout out to Tom. Yeah, Rock it was on. really interesting. Uh, he, in that, in one of the, I think it was the pack on anxiety. They have like these themed packs. So it was like a 30 day pack um, and it's a suggested course basically. And um, the technique that he shared was um, what he called noting. And it's exactly what you just described. But to me, nothing clicked about mindfulness or meditation or any of this stuff, anything about life. Nothing clicked until I learned this noting technique, which is essentially that, like your a thought comes, your, you know, you're sitting, your breath, a thought comes in and you note it. Uh, he, he takes you through over the course of a couple of weeks, you know, different layers. But I think the first layer was thinking or feeling. Is, is this a thought, my intellectual mind, or is this my, a feeling like an emotion, my heart? Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? And then if you want to later, I think the third one, or maybe it was the second one, you can actually label it like judgment, anxiety, uh, happiness, joy, excitement, fear, whatever. And just learning to have that split second of, of a pause with my thoughts rather than going like, oh, I'm thinking again, breath. Just going like, oh, I'm thinking anxiety, unpleasant. Hmm. Back to the breath. I can't tell you how incredibly liberating that was. And it's something mm. that I, I will, it was like a turning point in my life. And I feel like what you just described, it's like if people could give themselves the space to have that revelation for themselves, dear God, it'd be amazing. Well, yeah, and that's the, the other thing create. too, is I had, I had just published a, a newsletter, I think yesterday and I had been doing some research on, on the power of reading 
And I found that reading for just 30 minutes a week can have a profound impact on your life satisfaction. And so when you break it down, that's like less than five minutes a day of reading. And imagine if you could improve your life satisfaction doing something for four or five minutes. And then there was another data that I found that for for overall health, if you can exercise, move your body for 150 minutes a week, which breaks down to 21 minutes. Seven days a week. Yeah. Yeah. So now you've got 20 minutes of movement, which could be a walk. You have four or five minutes of reading, which could probably also be an audio book while you're walking so you can multitask. And then if you added in five or 10 minutes of mindfulness every day, you can transform yourself in just 30 minutes. And so going back to what Jason said, if you woke up 30 minutes earlier and did that, Mm. the power of that. And so then I started- Power half hour. Exactly. Power half hour. I like that. Put it on a (laughs) t-shirt. That's going to be our new thing. You know, the other thing is when I started doing the math for myself, and I, I wrote about this in my newsletter as well, is I go to that yoga class three days a week. And so that works. It's a 60-minute class. So that's 180 minutes a week. So I'm over the 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 ideal amount of exercise a week, just three days a week. And then I read 15 to 20 minutes before each class. So I, I usually get 45 minutes to an hour of reading three days a week. So it doesn't have to be every day. It, mm-hmm. It's really based on how much you do it. And so not only is that something I feel more excited to recommend to people, but it's also important for us to reflect in our own lives and how we're doing it in our own specific ways. Like part of my meditation practice happens during yoga, right? It's that shavasana period, or it's that moment at the end of my class when the teacher asks us to put our hands on our hearts or to take a breath before class even begins. You know, it, it's it's sometimes it's the meditation during the drive to class when I'm still waking up and I'm not listening to any music. I'm just focused on driving and that that you know seven minute drive or whatever it is for me to get to class of just just being present in the car and watching the traffic around me and the sun isn't even out and I'm I'm just kind of like coming into consciousness and and so I think the other important thing is for us to all find that time. And if you can just give yourself 30 minutes of self-care each day, and ideally at the beginning of the day before you turn on your phone, I mean, the massive shift that we can have within ourselves is going to start to ripple out to other people. And I think right now we we also live in a society with so much resistance to things like this, right? It's that this idea of short-term pleasure versus long-term pleasure. And the as with this podcast, we're very passionate about showing how growth is on the other side of of comfort, outside of your comfort zone. And so sometimes you just have to experience a few minutes of discomfort in order to get huge long-term results. I think the other part of this idea of being manipulated or controlled by other forces that have agendas, a thing that I really think about all the time that I need to constantly remind myself of is that in the in nature there's no such thing as scarcity. You take a walk in nature, there are an innumerable number of flowers, trees, seeds, blades of grass, insects, uh, depending on where we are creatures, right? That we couldn't physically count all of those things. We couldn't physically take a mental inventory of how much abundance there is in nature. I think in the humanistic modern technological world, there's an underlying attitude of, 
oh, you know, there's not enough money and we're heading towards a recession and everyone better buckle down. There's not enough money. There's not enough investment. There's not enough shares. Stock market's going to tank. Like this idea of lack and scarcity and doom. And I think that extends to healthcare, to money, to water, to resources, to time, to food. There's not enough healthy food. There's not enough time. There's not enough money. And it's a lie. It's a lie because this exists outside of the scope of the entire reality of nature in which we live in. Scarcity is a human created concept. And one thing I trip on all the time is thinking about uh, hunger. And obviously, us growing up in the the seventies, eighties, nineties, one of the big things that that we beat on with Live Aid was you know feeding children in Africa and other countries. And statistically, what I can, what I'm very passionate about, what I found is it's not the lack of grains and food and nourishing resources. It's a distribution issue. We're feeding the grains and the water and the resources to. 100 billion land animals each year and slaughtering them for meat, which is a horrifically inefficient practice, when we could be taking the corn, the peas, the crops, the soy, the oats, water. And, and the water, and giving them to humans who need to eat. But protein, bro, protein. <laughs> <laughs> the age-old question. Yeah. But my, my point is, is that I think one of the mechanisms of, of lie is the illusion of scarcity that continues to get perpetuated by corporations and media and government. And it is not true. We have, there's enough money, there's enough food, there's enough water. It's a distribution issue that if people were to move, I think, toward more compassion and generosity and equanimity, people could be fed and nourished. But then where's the profit in that? Right, exactly. And that's what it comes down to. And, and I'm not slamming yeah. capitalism, but I think our version of capitalism has destroyed humanism and destroyed compassion in the name of profit in the sense of, I don't think capitalism intrinsically, I think there can be ethical capitalism, but I think our current system is the furthest thing from ethical. Mm. It's the furthest thing from ethical. Mm. Man, we got in pretty deep. Yeah. Rants galore, people. Rants galore. Love rants. Hashtag love rants. Yeah. <laughs> well, as we wrap up this episode, Trevor, what are some other things on your heart? Like if you kind of uh, could have one last thing to discuss today, what would it be? Oh, boy. Uh, no pressure. Was there anything that you wanted to discuss today that we haven't touched upon or? I mean, there's, there... there's so much. I mean, yeah. I, I want to hear, this is a whole nother podcast episode, but I wanted to hear about your experience building Wellevator, where you're, and where you've both come from in your business backgrounds and with your training and your expertise and your, and your passions and how you've managed to fuse all those things into something that serves the world and also serves I hope, you know, a sense of purpose in you. I would love to hear about that. Okay. Um, we'll put that, we'll, maybe we'll do a whole dedicated episode to that. Yeah. We do have our, our uh, second and third episodes talked about our personal backgrounds. So we'll link to those in the show notes at wellevator.com for and the, the intro listener. episode too. Yeah, the intro. Mm-hmm. Well, the intro episode is like, this is what we're going to talk about. <laughs> I listened to I guess, one, yeah. of, one of the earlier episodes. You said something, Jason, that really resonated with me. You said something along the lines of, it's not... It's it for you at this point in your journey. It's less about what you want from life and more about what life wants from you. Yeah, I ask myself. That's that's one of my mindfulness practices in, and I say attempting because it is a practice to get the hell out of my own way. Is to ask, what does life want? Not what do I want? Because oftentimes my ego and what I want can color my entire reality. But one of the biggest questions that I've injected into my practice is, what does life want? 
And oftentimes what, what I perceive, again, when I say life interchangeable with God, spirit, universe, whatever the terminology is, I use life in this case. Like, what does life want from me? Oftentimes it is not the comfortable, easy choice. Life is asking me to do something to be like, oh, you want me to move there? You want me to do that thing? You want me to to have that uncomfortable, painful conversation with that person. That's what life, oh God. It's much easier to be like, well, I want to sit on the couch and not talk to that person and not move to the city that like spirit life is calling me. Whatever the thing is, often when I surrender to in my meditation and ask like, you know, what do you want life? Show me. I'm, oh, I'm an open vessel. Show me what you want. Show me what I'm to do. Often I often I don't, I don't like the answer that comes through. <laughs> I don't, but it's also surrendering to, I believe that I'm not just here to fulfill all of my desires and that be it. I think that I am here to be a vessel, to be a conduit, to be an antenna, to be a messenger for love and connection and creativity and truth and vulnerability and honesty. And through my own flawed, messy human experience, the more that I can access those things, I feel the more that I can shine that light and bring that energy to other people. And so I think if I had a life mission in asking what does life want, it is that. It's so I can be a better vessel and a better messenger for those things, sometimes better at it than others. I, I would love to hear before we wrap up real fast, just piggybacking on that. I love how we flipped it. This is amazing. Um, no, this is what happens when you bring another podcast. Around. I know. I hosted a podcast for so long that I can't help it. I love this. Wait, I can't, my I question just, is, if you'll remember yours, Trevor, just real quick, why did you stop podcasting? It, a couple or reasons. podcast? Do you think you'll get back into it? I, I don't know. It, it got to a point where it felt very saturated. Just like when I started it, like podcasting was a very novel thing and not a lot of people had a podcast or knew what it was and it felt like we were doing something unique and we were offering something unique. And then it just got to a point where it felt like everybody and their mother had a podcast and there was a lot of noise out there. There were a lot of people doing what we were doing, frankly, a little bit better. But the most important thing was I didn't, it felt, it began to feel like a a shirt that didn't fit right anymore. I felt like I was. Okay. Because I wanted to say like the parallel you just made, Trevor, could be applied because I often say the same thing. It could be applied to a YouTube channel. It could be applied to a music career. It could be applied to an acting career, which obviously you're a multi-talented artist and creative person. So up until you said it felt like a shirt that didn't fit, I thought, well, we could as creators and artists and business people make that argument for anything. (laughs) Everything's saturated. We're in LA with a quadrillion singers and musicians and actors and YouTubers and podcasters. So- Ought we not to let that prevent us from doing something if it's in our heart? Like for you, it felt like the shirt didn't fit. But if the shirt did still fit, you know, I guess this is another thing of how do we how do we move forward with gusto and verve and confidence knowing in a city like L.A., there's a quadrillion people doing the same shit, but not because they're not us. Mm -hmm. Like we could say they're doing the same shit. But you bringing your personality, your energy, your history, your perspective is is maybe the difference maker. Right. Because people. People want to hear you because you're you. Yes, no, maybe I mean, so. That, that'd be nice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, too hopeful. I think. Wait, I think we also. I I had a sense that I'd that finally with the podcast we had come to basically. I felt like we had said everything we were going to say. Ah. Um, that was another piece of it. So it started to feel like an ill-fitting piece of clothing. A lot of other people were doing it and doing it really well. And also I was like, I don't know what else I can add to this conversation at this point. I see. Right. Um, it's like when you know you're done, you're done. Yeah. And it was a hard, hard place to come to because it was a good thing um, in so many ways. And I I am so grateful for having done it because I met so many people that completely changed the trajectory of my life and career, what career there there was. Um, But uh, 
and I miss it, but it was the right thing because it just, my heart wasn't in it. It became a burden more than a, than a joy. But the question I wanted to ask you guys is, and we used to ask this at the end of every one of my episodes, but I always love it. If you could distill all of your knowledge and wisdom and everything from this journey of life that you've been on these many years till now, what and distill that into a nugget of wisdom that you could then pass on to somebody walking the path, maybe beside you or behind you or with you, what would that nugget of wisdom be? That one nugget of life wisdom. I, first of all, I'm going to steal blatantly from Jim Carrey and then add my own little layer steal on top like an of artist, Mr. Carrey. Man. One of the most profound things, and I feel like Jim Carrey has said and done a lot of really interesting, profound things the past decade, especially in his turn toward mindfulness and spirituality. There was a speech he gave at Maharishi University a few years ago, uh, and it's a, an incredible YouTube video. We'll link to it in the show notes. He said, don't you ever let fear turn you against your playful heart. And I feel that I have allowed fear to turn me against my playful heart far too many times in my life. And I'm becoming more aware of how I give into fear now than opposed to when I was younger. But I think fear of failure, fear of rejection, fear of not being accepted, fear of being misunderstood has robbed people from sharing their deepest gifts from the world. And it happens over and over and over and over again. So not allowing fear to derail us not allowing us to allow fear to turn us against ourselves is the biggest thing. And the other thing I think is to treat life as a as an experiment, as practice. Like it doesn't have to be so fucking serious all the time. It was so fucking YOLO, man, YOLO, we got one shot. You don't know that. <laughs> Ease up. <laughs> like, dude, slow down and breathe for a second. YOLO, bro. Slow the fuck down and enjoy this thing. Like, don't take it so seriously. Yeah, just just slow down and savor it more. Please. I say it to you, dear reader, and Trevor and Whitney, because I'm saying it to myself. Listeners. Reader, listener. Maybe they're reading. They might be reading the show notes. Yeah, I don't know. That's I just that's what that's the organic love vomit that just came through me. <laughs> love vomit. <laughs> Ooh, that'd be a why don't we call this love podcast? vomit? <laughs> Rebranding. Vomit. Vomit. What does that stand for? Love vomit. Oh, man. Oh, God. Oh, man. It's interesting when people ask questions like this. And I. it's funny how no matter how many times I've done public speaking, whenever I'm in a setting where somebody puts me on the spot and says like, hey, you know, condense down something till this one word or this one sentence, you know, no I, I always feel a lot of pressure. It's That's always interesting to observe. And that reminds me of what Jason and I went, what? No, I was going to say the first thing she usually does is punch them in the dick, which she didn't do to you, which is great. <laughs> She's like, I hate this question. I'm going to punch you in the penis. <laughs> no, I, it's more like, I hate this question. I'm going to disappear or change the subject um, or put it onto somebody else. Like my first instinct was like, why don't I just ask Trevor back his own question? And that way maybe. And then I can agree with what he says yeah. and I'm off the hook. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what's interesting is I think I was observing this within myself during a New Year's Eve party that Jason and I went to you know, a month, month ago or whatever it was. And it was at this amazing wellness space. And so it was just full of all these incredible wellness people. And they had, there was like maybe like 40, 40 people there. And they had every single person go around and share something. I forget what the question was. Wow. 
it was really interesting. I mean, Russell Brand was there and so he shared something and Marie Forleo is somebody else I really admire. She shared. So like, you know, you have those two and then you have like all these other incredible people that might not be as well known and they're sharing all these words of wisdom, right? Right. Wasn't the question like, what is... What are your hopes and dreams for the new year and beyond? And then it turned into like a lot of people giving advice. Holy moly. And it was mm-hmm. like... Very lengthy. Really long, but beautiful, deep answers. Yeah, it took like an at least an hour to go around. It was wow. really, it was special, but A, I did get kind of bored. I was like, you're just sitting there and I, and listening to people talk for that long. It can feel very draining for me, but I really didn't want to contribute. And so I like strategically found a way to leave because there was all this pressure from the group to talk. It started off as like, hey, if you want to share something, go ahead. And then it turned into every single person speaking whether they wanted to or not. And for me, I'm like, I don't want to be pressured to speak. So I got up and like left so that it, that when it came around to me, it would skip over me. And it was like noticing my that avoidant side of myself. And I was just kind of like, I think that I have this I think maybe my, to answer your question, Trevor, is what I'm kind of doing through sharing this is that it's, it's really about getting in tune with, with who you are and, and similar to Jason is, is not being afraid of it. If we can just gain more clarity, if we can peel back the layers and try to figure out who we are amongst like everything we see, because I, I think we get very clouded and we lose sight of who we are because we start to compare ourselves so much to other people. And that makes it tough because we're so busy looking at what other people are doing. We forget like, what do we really want? Who are, who we really are. Most of us grow up with being in the traditional education system. And so we're covered with the layers of what our teachers have taught us about who we should be and how we should operate in the world. We're also, it's hard to gain clarity on ourselves based on our parents or parental figures, our family members. And what they tell us, mm-hmm. you know, we're so impressionable. We're shaped by the people in our lives. And so a lot of the times it becomes really hard to figure out who you really are and what you really want. And I think a lot of us walk around with resentment and confusion and fear because we're not living out what feels best to us, but it's so hard to identify that sometimes. So like in that moment on New Year's Eve, I felt like, I don't like to be pressured. I don't like to be cornered. I don't like to be forced or controlled into something. If I want to speak, I'll speak. If I, if, but if I just want to listen, just let me listen, right? And so in those, in those social situations, I'll, I'll sometimes get really like frustrated, you know, or, or feel that pressure to say the right thing, mm-hmm. you know? And I've noticed that within myself is sometimes I'm so busy trying to do the right thing or say the right thing to please other people that I lose track of of what I really want and who I really am. So I think that's a huge mission of mine is to not only figure that out for myself, but encourage other people to do that too. It's like kind of going back to Jason, be unapologetic for who you are and what you want. You know, I think it's still very important to operate from a place of caring for other people, like not to take it to a narcissistic or ego-based extreme of like, I'm the only person that matters and screw everybody else. I'm going to do what I want, right? I think it's still very important for us to function as a community and to take into consideration how other people feel and what other people's needs are. But it goes back to that cliche advice is you have to put the 
what's that called in the airplane the mask on your face what's it called <laughs> oxygen mask oxygen mask yeah, yeah you have to put that on yourself first and then you know a lot of us grew up seeing that advice and being confused like what do you mean like there'd be like a picture of like a little kid next to an adult and they're like the adult's got to put it on first and you're like what do you mean like our instinct is to put the oxygen mask on the on the little kid first but the reason that that advice is in place is if we don't take care of ourselves first, we will not be able to help other people. So coming back to you, Trevor, too, it's like from an environmental standpoint, if we want to change the world, we have to start by changing ourselves. We have to take care of ourselves if we are going to have the emotional or physical resiliency to go make a difference. So my advice is just to continue to look inward so that you can make a bigger input outward. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It start. It really does start with within, and it's become kind of cliche. But I don't think enough people really take it. We hear all this advice, but a lot of us take in information and don't actually apply it. Well, yeah, because y'all weren't listening the first five times. That's why. (laughs) Yeah, like why do they say this stuff? Because y'all weren't listening. Well, I think people can listen, but implementation is the key. You can't just take it in. You have to actually take action. It's like we we all we all know it's good for us to meditate, but that doesn't mean you're going to meditate every day. We all know that yoga or moving your body for 20 minutes a day is great, but a lot of us just want to sit around and do nothing. Like we know what we could be doing to improve ourselves, but a lot of us aren't doing it. And I think if you think about it from an internal and external motivation point, like how can you, if you know that you're going to feel your best, life is is a lot nicer. And if you know that when you feel your best, you can also help the world improve, then I think it really becomes motivating. Wow. Amen. All right, Trevor, it's your mm-hmm. turn. Yeah, you're not escaping this one, sir. Damn it. Just in case. Uh, well, you guys, uh, that was really good. <laughs> um, well, you should be used to this. You've been hearing so much of it. I will say, I want to give a shout out before I forget that, Trevor, you have some of my favorite email newsletters that I've ever read. And I actually, before you got here, had Jason read through a few of them. I'm like, this is a really great summary of, of who Trevor is and what he believes oh, yeah. in. And I just love Love your insights and the things that you share. And I love the music that you put out recently. I'm going to link to that in the show notes at wellevator.com. And is this something that's publicly, it's not just for your friends, like anybody can sign up for your newsletter? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, I've then, been really lazy with it lately. I just haven't felt, it hasn't felt right to put out something when I didn't feel like I had something important to say, but thank you for that. It's really good. Now I'm totally yeah. going to get back on it. No, honestly, and I'm putting the pressure on because the listener might go and sign up yeah. after this episode. And they, and they it's ought really to. Good. They ought nice. to because the tangential, dynamic, lovely nature of of what Whitney exposed me to with your newsletters. I just, I loved the dynamism and how tangential. And I say that as a compliment of like, we're going from like, you know, this seven track EP about loss and heartbreak and anger and like raw human emotions, this great instrumental stuff. And then another newsletter, you're referencing the wisdom of Mike Tyson. I'm like, (laughs) <laughs> no, it, it, it's the dynamic. I and love. Don't forget the the one that Jason was very intrigued by, which was this was I think years ago. I pulled them up. Was your music video the like it was like an Arnold Schwarzenegger, oh, yeah, like a Terminator, Terminator my love, Terminate my love, yeah. yeah. Oh, that was so fun, man. <laughs> yeah. that, was gonna, Doug, that was Doug Bressler. We're gonna link yeah. to yes, all we will. of this but, in the show notes. But okay, but that's life. Like I, I, I love getting a glimpse into your brain that way. Because of obviously your your desire to consume so many aspects of life 
and interpret them as an artist sharing resources in the music and you're acting in these great quotes. And I don't know, it's just an appreciation of like, oh, I'm getting a little glimpse into this man's brain and I, I like what I see. Thank you so much. That That's a wonderful thing to hear. Thank you. Now I'll have to get back on. I've, I've almost sent about five newsletters since the last one, but I just stopped. I was like, ah, it doesn't feel like, it doesn't, feel, it doesn't resonate with me. But maybe I'll um, push through that now. Maybe Thank it's, you. Uh, what is, I always forget, is it the War of Art? That's the title of the book, Pressfield. Stephen Pressfield. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm always afraid that I'm saying the name wrong, but that I always come back to that book whenever I feel resistance, which is yeah. a great resource, is that anytime we start to do something and then we hesitate and we doubt it and we decide not to do it. And I'm I'm guilty of this. I do this almost every single day, probably every single day, actually. It, I get really in my head with the doubt of, should I put something out there? Is it worthwhile? Is it worth saying? And a lot of the times the answer is, yes, it is worth it because it doesn't need to be perfect. It doesn't need to be right all the time. It doesn't need to resonate with everybody. And some people won't like it. That's just the way it is. But I hope that we have inspired you, Trevor, because there's just some some people it doesn't matter what they do exactly. It's just hearing from them makes you feel good. And you're one of those people for me. And that's why I wanted to bring you on the podcast is that you have an energy that I experience of something that that touches my heart. And also, I'll learn things from you, like the links that you put out. You're kind of like Tim Ferriss style with his five things. You'll just like have a little link to a documentary you've watched or a book that you've read or, you know, your music is so good. And when I saw that newsletter again today, I'm like, I got to start listening to your music again because I Mm. really loved it. And yeah, so I I hope that you do publish it. Okay. Thank you. So no more delaying because we only have a few minutes left. So what would be, and this can be our our closeout for the episode. What is your one piece of wisdom? wisdom? And what is it today? It doesn't have to be something you've said before. Hopefully it isn't. Like, what is on your heart right now in in terms of something you want to leave people with? Um, I, you know, what keeps coming up for me is, is something that was two things. Uh, one was I'm stealing from Chris Gullibaut and he wrote in a newsletter, not years ago now, but it, it keeps, it comes up for me like almost every day when I do my, my morning pages freely give, freely receive. And that's speaking to the whole sort of scarcity being this human created concept thing. And I have to constantly remind myself that like, it's okay to go out to a restaurant and spend $18 on a hamburger, well, a vegan hamburger. I'm, I was thinking of, of like the impossible burger, which I just had at Mendocino Farms, which is the first plant-based burger. Yeah. And it's the first plant-based burger I've had that I was like, wow, all the other ones I'm kind of like, was it $18 there? Yeah. At Mendocino Farms. Uh, maybe 14, but I don't know. You can get it with or without certain things. It's amazing. They charge you for Avo. <laughs> yeah. They, Wait, you've had it at Mendocino Farms? No, but they always upcharge you oh. for Avo. <laughs> they upcharge you for a lot of things. But but did you anyway. know you can get the uh, just a little piece of advice for any... I guess the Beyond Burger and the, the Impossible Burgers at, at Burger King. If you want to get a cheese, I've had it. I've had it at Burger King, <laughs> but they also put the cheese on it and they put mayo on it. Like, that's you can not take it off. Based. Yeah. But I don't it's know. also Burger King. Yeah, it's Burger King. You'd so. rather go to Mendocino and spend $14. Okay, Anyway, but the idea, freely give, freely receive. Because sometimes I get, sometimes I don't successfully walk that line between intentionally frugal and putting my money where I want to go and being cheap. 
you know? Which is perfect <laughs> I, that some... I, I brought up cheaper options. You're like, sorry, Whitney, I'm not no, no, being I, cheap. I've been there. But like, I'll, I'll go to these places and I'm like, ah, oh, you know, $14, I could eat for like like three days on that if I was smart with my money. Like, I'm going to use it on one meal, you know, like, and I get sort of in my head about it. Not because I'm like hurting for money or anything. It's just the way I'm wired. I just like a good mm-hmm. deal. And I, I'm just constantly trying to keep myself in line. But one thing I, I've been practicing lately is just being like when you put this money out into the world trevor like you are paying people salaries you're putting gas in the tanks of people's work you're feeding people like like if that money is going and doing good things this is the this is the deal we have you can't just take things and hoard them and hold on to them and never give them back so freely give freely receive it's been something i've been practicing just opening up and letting money flow letting money and abundance and love and energy and relationships and all that just flow and stop trying to, you know, isolate things and yeah. containerize them. So that's number one. And number two, uh, this, a podcast guest said this to us a long time ago in the early days of the podcast, um, blanking his name, Daryl, Darren, pa- Darren Petty is his name. He's an actor, a stage actor, he's done some TV. Um, but we asked him this question and he said, wear life like a loose garment. And mm-hmm. I like that. And that's, I think subconsciously where I got that ill-fitting shirt thing from when I talked about the podcast earlier, but I just love that. Wear life like a loose garment. It's just a fun, nice way of saying, don't be such a... Fill in the blank. Fill in the blank. I want to hear about what Trevor. We're like waiting for you. Don't YOLO, be such a bro, stick in the mud. YOLO. <laughs> <laughs> After the, the okay, let's each say what word came up for us. For me, I was like, I, th- I was like, is he going to say tightwad? What were you Yes, thinking? I was actually. You were? Oh, okay. I was going to say stick in the mud. <laughs> to bring it back to the third. Don't be such a stick in the mud. Yeah, but why would he, why would he like be afraid to say stick in the mud? Like he, you hesitated. That's just what as came a, up in my mind. Like, is that an offensive term? <laughs> I mean, I also, the choice B was douche. Don't be such a douche. Oh, okay. Okay. That's the real. Yeah, that's but for you, it's Taiwan. Do you what you want yeah, to say? Yeah. You know, I, I tend to get, I gravitate towards like systems and rules. And like, I'm the kind of person that like, when I have a little revelation about something, I'm like, figured it out, done, moving on next. That's my solution for the rest of my life for that area you know like i'm an early riser now 5 a.m every day for the rest of my life <laughs> that and reminds then, me of um i you know i have these flashbacks to working at apple sometimes and i remember being in the back room the break it was like our our break room at one point was in the back area where we stored all the stock and we had we were answering the phones that's like where we would hang out yeah and we're like god at so many the, memories at the man. very beginning yeah. back in like 2005 2006 six before you left trevor we would all like hang out in the back and it was like acceptable to do that until things got really strict and i remember one time you came in with a salad actually you know what now that i'm really thinking about it maybe it was like out in the theater during a break or something somehow i remember you with a salad trevor and you <laughs> what? Just, what? i'm so embarrassed at who i used to be no, but, well, i guess no, it's a good thing a, right this is a great thing it's like okay. one of those little things that you you store in your brain that it's like memorable. And, and I just remember you being like, yeah, it's a really simple salad, but I'm just eating for fuel. And I remember <laughs> thinking like, like that was actually really cool. Yeah. Cause I think at that period of my life, I was probably eating a lot more processed food. I remember like on my lunch breaks, I would go and like get a burrito or something, you know, like I would, not that that is really that process, but I, or I go to subway or something, you know, like I, it was always vegan, but I was eating a lot of like, 
processed convenience foods, who knows what else. And I remember at that point being like, wow, you know, maybe mm. I should change my perspective on food. Like maybe it doesn't always have to taste great or be cheap or whatever. Actually, having a salad probably was really cheap. But I, I just remember you like had this kind of matter of fact way about food at that point. And I'm sure it's changed and ebbed and flowed since then. But but uh, yeah, it was just like thinking about food as fuel versus food as something pleasurable. And, and you, your point was like, it doesn't have to taste good. It just has to make me feel good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm a little bit more lenient these days, but I try like, I don't know, I guess here's a good way to sort of summarize that point. And then I know we got to wrap up, but like I used to be very into like, you know, intermittent fasting and these are the rules and I eat this at this time of day and that. And that to me was like wearing a, a suit, right? It's like you're in this like really nice, perfectly tailored suit and you move a certain way and you feel great, right? But at a certain point, you just want to sit on the couch and like spread out a little bit. So that loose fitting garment thing I like because then I think to myself like, okay, if I were to apply this to like food, like have a fruit smoothie most days a week, have a salad most days a week, you know, make sure you're eating whole foods. But if you want to go get a burrito, if you want to go get like the, 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 the processed cheese thing or have a bunch of chips or whatever like okay like dude it's okay but as long as you're sticking to like have a salad most days a week like you're eating for fuel but you can still enjoy it like that's the loose garment thing i feel like that's what it looks like in action in that sort of arena so um it's funny you bring that up because that's actually been on my mind lately really yeah long story but we can go through the time but yeah when you say loose garment it makes me want to go out and buy a muumuu that's like I feel like I, I wear very tight clothing and I yeah. feel now as if I want to actually the, the one thing that I do want to wear that I haven't worn in public yet is I bought a robe last year, but it's a robe that is gold and navy. Wait, what do you mean wear it in public? It's do you guys remember Earth, Wind and Fire? Yeah. OK. Do you remember in their heyday in the 70s and 80s, they would dress up like kind of these flowy Egyptian robes? <laughs> It was kind of like a little bit of funkadelic, like George. It was kind of like George Clinton and Earth and One Fire had these like these garish costumes. It's a garish robe and it is loose fitting. And I feel like I just want to sort of do like this Earth, Wind and Fire Prince tribute and just wear like leopard print underwear with this 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 robe and just walk around the streets of L.A. You've inspired me to do Dude, that. If, if Jared Leto can get away with it, you can get away with it. Damn right. <laughs> Damn right. <laughs> Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.